Colossians chapter 3, verses 18, and then we're going to go into the first verse of chapter 4 today. If you don't have a Bible with you, you don't like using an app on your phone, if you just grab the one that's in that rack right in front of you, on the back of your pew, that black Bible, if you just turn to page 984, that should be where you find our passage today, Colossians 3, starting in verse 18. And if you are a guest with us, uh, we always want to let you know right from the beginning Uh, that we believe the Bible is the inspired word of God. This is inerrant in the original manuscripts, sovereignly preserved for us through the generations, so that through the reading of this book and the illumination of God's spirit, we can know God, and we can love him, and we can follow him, and we can worship him. Uh, and, And we believe so much in the supremacy and the sufficiency of scripture that we don't think that what I have to say today matters at all unless it agrees with what God says in his word. We want to collectively be a church that believes it does not matter what I think. What matters is what the Bible says. So what the Bible says needs to become what we think. And that's why we want you to see what God's word says for yourself today in Colossians chapter 3. We've been going through uh, Paul's letter to the church in Colossae, and we're almost to the end. We only, have a few, uh, we only have a couple weeks left in chapter 4 after today, uh, but we've been doing it with this purpose in mind, that we would see the supremacy and the centrality of Christ in everything, I- including our own lives, uh, and as we will see, see today, including in our relationships with each other. Uh, Colossians ha- has moved from chapter 1, the supremacy and the centrality of, of Jesus overall, to chapter 3, the supremacy and centrality of Jesus in us. He's in us. Because unless and until Jesus is at the center of our hearts and our minds and our affections, nothing else will make sense. Until he is who we value the most, we won't be able to value or view other things correctly. And we've been seeing in chapter 3 the incredible transformation that happens when we find our identity in Christ. It's in Jesus. We, we set our minds on things that are above instead of all these earthly things. We, we put to death what is still earthly in us because we want Christ to be all and in all. We saw last week that it's a transformed heart ruled by the peace of Christ, a transformed mind dwelling on the word of Christ that leads to a transformed life, doing everything in the name of Jesus. To to be a Christian is to say, I don't want to live for myself anymore. I tried that. I saw how that worked out. didn't work out so well. I want to live for Jesus That's what it means to be a Christian. I want Christ to be all and in all. And and I haven't taken the time to mention this yet, so I will now. I'm trusting that Colossians 3 is demonstrating how important and practical good theology is. Uh, Theology simply means the study of God. Christology would be the study of Christ. And, and, And these are not merely academic exercises. Because the more you learn about who God the Father is, the more you learn about who you belong to. Because we are God's chosen ones. And and the more you learn about who God the Son is, the more you learn about your own identity. Because you are in 
Christ, and Christ is in you. Your new self is defined by Jesus being all and in all. So, so just thinking about our, the last verse from our passage last week, Colossians 3.17, which was quite convicting for me as I shared being able to put Jesus' name on everything that I do, doing everything in the name of Jesus instead of in the name of Tim Pine, that is impossible without good theology. Because we can't say we are doing everything in the name of Jesus if we don't know who Jesus really is. And if we don't know what Jesus would really do. But when the peace of Christ rules our hearts, verse 15, and the truth of Christ fills our minds, verse 16, then our words and our actions will naturally be better and better reflections of him, verse 17. Theology, Christology, all those ologies, those are not academic. Those are so practical to how we live every day because we belong to God. We are in Christ. We want everything to do to be reflections of his name, not our own. And so if that is your desire, if, if you want Jesus to be supreme and central in everything in your life, one question that we should be asking is, is, is well, what does that look like in, in our relationships? What, what does that look like in my marriage? What does that look like in my family? What, what does that look like at, at, at my workplace? What, what do relationships in the name of the Lord look like? What do they look like? Uh, that's, that's what I think our passage is covering this morning. Paul jumps right from do everything in the name of Jesus to talking about these different three different relational dynamics. And, and one disclaimer before I read our passage this morning uh, is that Colossians was written to followers of Jesus. And, and so if you aren't a follower of Jesus yet, I, I'm so glad that you are here I'm so glad that you're listening and trying to learn from these things. And, and I will acknowledge that some of what this passage says might be foreign to you. It might be very far from your reality. But I want you to know that if you would make Jesus the king of your life, he transforms the dynamics of our earthly relationships. And, and there's a repetition in these verses that I don't want us to miss. And, and so as I read, if you could do me a favor, every time we come to the words, the Lord, in this passage, every time we come to the words, the Lord, I want you to say those two words with me, just so we see the repetition. If you have a different translation of the Bible from the English Standard Version, you just want to look on the screen uh, so it doesn't get mixed around, that's totally fine. Uh, but this is the English Standard Version, Colossians 3, 18 through chapter 4, verse 1. Wives, Submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases fathers. Do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord, sorry, you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. 
Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master, which is the Lord in heaven. Uh, By the way, uh, we went right into chapter 4 because that is in the running for the worst chapter division in all of the Bible. I mean, just one of the worst ones I've ever seen. Uh, if, if you don't know, chapters and verses, the big letters and the small letters in your Bible are not original to the text itself. They were added later to make it easier to find things. So I could get up and I could say, turn to this passage and then you would know where to find it. They're not original to the text. There's nothing inspired about them. And some of, some of them just don't make any sense at all. And whoever decided to break up this, this dynamic of a relationship uh, by having the chapter division there instead of one verse later. They just have some explaining to do. I don't understand it. So you can ignore it when it's not helpful to you. Just ignore it. I digress. Okay, six times Paul directs our attention to the Lord while framing up these relational commands. This is where he wants your mindset to be. This is for the Lord. This pleases the Lord. You are serving the Lord as is fitting in the Lord. Because God's commands for relationships were meant to be seen and lived out within the context of Jesus being overall and in all. It was meant to be seen and lived out within the reality that Jesus is the greatest reality. He is above us and he is in us. And that reality provides the framework on which relationships are built. So to take away Jesus from this passage would be to take away the entire purpose of this passage. If Jesus isn't over us and in us, then I don't have much for you today by way of relationship advice. I don't have anything for you, right? And what I do have might come across as frustrating rather than helpful, Uh, Because this is all about Jesus. This is seeing him as the reality over and in all of these dynamics. And and so so, so just so you know, you you can find more instructions on these specific relationships in other passages. This is not the passage that people come to when thinking through the dynamics between a husband and a wife. We only get two sentences on that here. It's covered much more in much more detail in other places because specifics wasn't Paul's goal here. His intention seems to be to emphasize that Christ is over us and in us and that reality has practical ramifications within our relationships. So with each of these, marriage, family, the workplace, there are all sorts of what ifs. There are so many what abouts. Uh, that, that, are, that are worth asking, right? Questions that are worth considering, worth thinking through, that need to be thought through. Uh, but that's not, what this, that's not what this passage leads us to. It's just giving us the general framework in which then we could go pursue deeper and ask more specific questions. And so as always, I welcome specific questions. Text me, email me, talk to somebody else that you trust. Uh, if, if some of this sort of like stirs a question in your mind, but what about this or what about that? Those are questions that are worth asking. You just might get frustrated because they're not all answered in this particular text. This is dealing with a general framework of everything being built around and under the authority and supremacy of Jesus. And and so the first relational dynamic is spelled out for us in verses 18 and 19. 
which says, Wives, submit to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord, and husbands, love your wives, and do not be harsh with them. So, the, so, so what does marriage in the name of the Lord Jesus look like just in general terms? All right, that's the question. What does marriage in the name of the Lord Jesus look like in general terms? It looks like submitting and loving. Submitting and loving. And if you are nervous about what I'm going to say about submission right now, so am I. <laughs> right? Because I know, I know that I'm walking into a lot of pain and a lot of emotional experiences anytime marriage relationships come up. And I always want to be helpful and not hurtful. And I, 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 I said to Pastor John, I was like, do you think Paul knew what he was doing when he just gave us two sentences on this dynamic and then just moved on? Like, he just, he just created a lot more work for us is what he do. Doesn't spell anything out. Just one sentence. Move on. Here we go. Uh, but coincidentally, a, a few weeks ago, uh, there's a college student at a Christian school that had an assignment where they had to ask me this question. What do you think about when you hear the word Submission. And my first thought was, yay, right? But my answer was, I think about a biblical concept that has been poorly lived out and misapplied within the brokenness of this world. Right? No denying that this is a biblical concept. We see it in Scripture. But it has been poorly lived out and misapplied. And I would add that a lot of the problem is that this concept of biblical submission is often not presented or lived out within the framework of Christ being king over all and in all of his followers. So, what does that mean? Automatically, I am not king of my marriage, right? I am not the king of my castle because Jesus is king, right? He is the one with ultimate authority over us. And, and I could talk a lot in this moment about what submission is not, and, and one thing I want to mention, because we see it in this text, is that submission is not the same as obedience. And the reason I say that is because obedience is the word that's used in the other two relationships that we see here. You see it right in the next few verses with, with children and, and, and parents, right? And so if, 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 if those two things were synonymous, if obedience and submission were synonymous, Paul would have probably just used the same word for all three, but he doesn't, because it's different, it's, it's not just do what I say. It's not submission without qualification. There's a qualification right here in this verse. It's submission as is fitting in the Lord. And, and, and so here, here's what I would say. Submission in a Christian marriage is the willingness of a wife to honor and affirm the leadership of her husband as he seeks to follow Jesus. Because while husbands and wives have different roles, we're not interchangeable, we are both under the ultimate authority of Christ. Uh, one thing I'm going to tell my daughter one day is that this passage does not tell women to submit to men. We see that, right? It says, wives, submit to your husbands. It does not tell all women to submit to all men. It's, it's specific in, in this choice, right? So, husbands and wives, men and women, equal, dignity, value, worth, both made in the image of God. So, if my daughter chooses to get married, which is not a requirement, and singleness can be a gift as well, but if she does, my prayer is that she will only marry someone she trusts to lead her and her family closer to Jesus. 
that, that's a choice she gets to make, right? If she doesn't trust him to lead her closer to Jesus and to lead their family closer to Jesus, run from the altar, right? Don't go there, right? Because this is what God calls us to. And, and I'm just going to leave what I say about submission right there. Because if you have more questions on this and you want to figure out how to apply this in your own dynamic, in your own relationship, I am not the best person to answer those questions. Right? There are ladies in our church who have fulfilled this verse for 40, 50, even 60 years. And so if you haven't been married for that long, right, I hope you take advantage of examples that we have right here in our church family. This is what they're there for, incredible women who would love to welcome you into their home and have a cup of coffee with you and to help you think through how, how, how this has played out for them, how this can play out for you. Yeah, it's a much better environment to think through more specifics and even the messiness that sin creates as we try to live this out. I am not the best person for that. These women are, and I know that they would love to talk to you. So please dive into specifics with them. I would much rather talk about verse 19, <laughs> right? Because that's what applies to my life. Husbands, husbands, if Christ has transformed your heart and your mind, that will be seen in your love for your wife. If he's transformed your heart, he's transformed your mind, that will be seen in your love for your wife. We have been called to lead in our marriages, and we lead with love. We lead with love. And it's amazing how complicated everything else gets when we don't start right there, men. We lead with love. Love. We lead with self-sacrifice because Ephesians 5 tells us our example of loving our wives is how Jesus loved the church and gave himself up for her. He died for her. So the extent to which we are to be willing to love our wives is the extent to which Jesus loved us when he bled and died in our place at the cross. That's the kind of love that I think people want to follow. That's the kind of love that people want to walk in. We lead with love. And it makes sense that we would lead with the love of Christ that went to the cross because we are in Christ, right? That's our identity. Christ is all. So within that identity, if we are in Christ, Christ's love should be our love. Why would it be any other kind of love? We, we belong to him. Christ's love becomes our love. If Christ's love is our love, the first place that should be demonstrated is to the woman we have made a lifelong covenant commitment to. And so I would just suggest that verse 18 gets much easier for wives to fulfill when husbands are fulfilling verse 19. And when we fail to love our wives as Christ loves us, submission feels, not necessarily is, but it feels impossible. And it's so easy to focus our, our attention on what the other person isn't doing or is doing wrong. And, and if there's a standoff of sorts in your marriage right now, husbands, lead by loving your wife with the love that comes not from you, but from Christ. Not with an empty gesture, but with a love that is the natural outworking of your new identity that is found in him. So I know that there's all sorts of what-ifs and there's specific questions. Paul doesn't go into all of those. Uh, those deserve time. They deserve attention. This is a general framework for marriages under the authority of Jesus, submission and love. And I would really appreciate uh, if you followed up with someone as you seek, 
to live out those specifics in your life. Let's look at the next dynamic, verse 20. Children, obey, there's a difference, your parents in everything. Why? For this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. So what does a family in the name of the Lord Jesus look like? It looks like obedience and encouragement. Obedience and encouragement. And, and there, I know that there's plenty of what-ifs and specific questions about this dynamic as well, but on the surface, this might be the least controversial command in this passage. Children, obey your parents. That's not news to you. You're not surprised to hear that in a church setting. I told my kids that I was going to be talking about this today, and one of them tried to tell me that they always obey their parents, <laughs> which is very selective memory on their part. Uh, but, but anyway, I digress once again. Uh, I don't want you to miss the why. What's the why? Why should children obey their parents? Is it, to make their is it to make their parents happy? No. It's for this pleases the Lord. We have a higher calling than just trying to make other people happy. Oh, and that's such good news. We have a higher calling than that. Behavior modification is not the goal. Worship is the goal, doing what pleases Jesus. So I don't want my children to obey me for me. I am praying that they will have a desire to please Jesus with their young lives, and obeying their parents is one way for them to fulfill the greater purpose of worshiping Christ in everything. And, and there's an assumption in this verse that we as parents should not miss. And, and think about it within the context that we find this passage in. Jesus rules our hearts, his words fill our minds, so the assumption is that our rules and our instructions to our children are pleasing to the Lord. So by obeying us, they are obeying him. Right? By, by doing what we say, they are pleasing Jesus. And, and by the grace of God, I pray that we never put our children in a position where they feel like they have to choose between obeying their parents and pleasing the Lord. Because some of you have had to do that. And that's the position that you felt like you're in. And it's pretty disorienting, right? When your parents are telling you to do one thing, but you feel like God is telling you to do another. That is a disorienting place to be. I don't care how old you are as a child of a parent. That is a very difficult place to be. Children obeying Christian parents should, by its nature, result in them also pleasing the Lord. They should not have to choose between the two. And it's interesting that while children are to obey their parents, Paul doesn't call out both parents in verse 21. Did you notice that? Children obey your parents, and then, hey, dads, <laughs> stop exasperating or provoking your children. Don't discourage them. And, and while moms should take this to heart as well, maybe, just maybe, Paul is calling out a tendency in us men that we should identify and put to death, as verse 5 told us. Right? Verse, we saw it, verse 19, love your wives, don't be harsh with them. Verse 21, don't provoke or discourage your children. It seems like Paul knows that within our flesh that we are in the process of rooting out we are in Christ, there is a tendency for us to respond to our families without grace and without love. Just all law, no gospel. And maybe you had that in your house growing up and it was very difficult for you. Just all law, no gospel. That's not what the Bible says. 
It's not what the Bible says. We don't want to parent in such a way that makes our children feel like they can never make us happy. (laughs) Some of you know how discouraging that is. Let me go a step further than that, actually. We don't want to parent in such a way that makes our children think our happiness is the goal at all. Right? Do we see that? We want them to please the Lord. Right? So doing everything in the name of their parents is not the goal. And some of you need to hear that, so I'll say it again. Doing everything in the name of your parents is not the goal. Doing everything in the name of Jesus is the goal. And as parents, we should long for our children to do everything in his name, not our name, because he has transformed them from the inside out. Is that what we want, parents? It's not in our name. It's about his name. It's about Jesus. Do you see how transformative this theme in Colossians is when applied to these dynamics? Just generally speaking. And I know that there's so many more specifics and potential follow-up conversations, but I want you to see this structure. Christ is overall and in all. We're doing everything in his name as we live out these relationships. Let's look at the last one, verse 22. Bond servants, obey in everything, obey, those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, Work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there is no partiality. Ignore the terrible chapter division. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So here's the question, what does a workplace in the name of Jesus look like? Uh, Paul actually has the most to say about this one, you might have noticed. And he calls servants to obedience and masters to justness and fairness. And it would be wrong of me to imply that Paul is talking about a typical employee-employer relationship that we experience today in this passage. Uh, you, You might have a translation that actually uses the word slave instead of bondservant. And and while this is certainly different than 19th century American slavery that immediately comes to our minds whenever we hear that word, this is also different than our nine-to-five job dynamics. Okay, I just want to put that out there. This is different than that. But with that understanding, uh, there's a bunch of applications for us that I believe are very helpful and that we need to see. Because all of us are under the human authority of another in some form or fashion. All, All of us are. As parents, maybe you've had this experience, you might laugh when your kids say that they can't wait till they're grown up so they can do whatever they want, <laughs> right? Because that never happens, right? You never get, you never get to that stage in, in, in your life, right? There's always someone in authority over you, amen? Right, just always. There's always somebody over us, and when you're an adult, those authorities don't tend to love you as much as your parents do, right? This, like I tell my kids, this is the best authority you're ever going to experience in your life. Um, maybe that's self-serving. I don't know. Okay, so, and, and so, and so Paul is saying here that regardless of the dynamic, our focus shouldn't be on the human authority. It should be on the one with ultimate authority. We set our minds on things above. So we're not just people pleasers. 
We aren't just outwardly compliant. The work that we do comes from the heart. Verse 22, we obey with sincerity of heart. Verse 23, we work heartily as for the Lord. Why? Because our heart isn't ruled by a human master or boss or teacher or parent. Our heart is ruled by Jesus. And he transforms everything. So we aren't just working for a paycheck. Our reward is not money. Our reward is an inheritance from the Lord. So, so when you go into work this week, if you are in Christ, if Jesus has made you new, you have a higher calling than whatever's on your desk and whatever's in your email and whatever's on your to-do list. You are not just trying to make your boss happy or your clients happy. That goal is a recipe for a lot of frustration. Trying to make people happy almost never, almost never works. It's, it's exhausting. You are serving the Lord. Whatever you're doing, if you are in Christ, you are serving the Lord, who is a much better master than any earthly master you might find yourself under. And no matter how much of an authoritarian your earthly boss is, you have a higher authority, and good news, so do they. Verse 25 is pretty encouraging for those of you who have been victims of people abusing their power in any dynamic. The wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong they have done, and there is no partiality. That's good news. That's good news, right? So some people might live like they are above the law now, they might use their position or influence or checkbook or muscle to ensure that the regular rules don't apply to them, but no one, no one is above the law of God except for God himself. There is a just and ultimate judge who cannot be bribed and cannot be threatened. There is a master of masters. There is a king of all kings. There is a lord of all lords. It's not a fantasy world to acknowledge the reality of Jesus. It's a fantasy world to live like he doesn't exist. There's a lot of human authorities that are in for quite a wake-up call when they meet their ultimate authority. Jesus is and always will be the greatest reality. And I've been struck this week by how depressing this passage would be without Jesus. Just imagine if we took all the statements about the Lord out of this, right? And just how depressing this passage would be. Because without Jesus, all of these relational dynamics would be hopelessly broken. It's just power struggles and abuses of authority. It's working for yourself. It's doing whatever makes you happy. It's whatever is convenient or temporarily satisfying. It's obedience motivated by fear. It's looking out for yourself because everyone else is looking out for themselves. It's decisions driven by the almighty dollar. It's what we see all around us, right? This, this is what we see. It's all these relationship dynamics played out without the authority of Jesus being acknowledged. And into that brokenness, Jesus came. Literally, into all this broken dynamics, right? And power struggles and people acting like they're really the one who's in charge and abusing their position and their authority and their, and their money. Into all of that, Jesus literally came. God himself saw us in our broken relationships, which are merely a reflection of our broken relationship with him because of our sin. 
Sin is the rejection of God's authority and design for our lives, and it ruins everything it touches. We don't experience the world the way God created it to be because we all rebelled against his authority. But rather than leaving us for our own demise, Jesus came. God came to us in the person of Jesus, into the brokenness of our relational dynamics, and Jesus lived the perfect life that you and I failed to live. And then in submission to the will of the Father, he humbled himself and was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. There, Jesus died the death that you and I deserved to die. He demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. But that's not the end of the story. Because then Jesus rose from the dead. He conquered sin and the grave. So if in your brokenness you turn and you believe in Jesus, his perfect life, his sacrificial death, his victorious resurrection. If you say, Jesus, I want you to be the king of my life. I'm tired of trying to do this on my own. I can't make it by myself. I can never be good enough. I need you to be king of my life. All your sins are forgiven. The righteousness of Jesus credited to your formerly guilty account. You become part of the eternal family of God. You have a new identity, and it's in Christ. So his peace can rule your heart. His truth can start to fill your mind. Your life is transformed from the inside out. And if you've never done so before, I would love for nothing more than for you to place your faith in Jesus today instead of living for yourself. And if that has happened, if you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus, we have a greater purpose in our marriages. We have a greater purpose in our families. We have a greater purpose in our workplace. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, we get to do everything, not in our own name, but in the name of Jesus. We, we can know that these dynamics are not ultimate because Jesus is supreme. So we don't honor authority for their sake or for our own sake. We serve the Lord. We have a master in heaven. He is above and he is in. And, and this is the question I want us to think about. Is the name of Jesus the greatest reality in our relationships with each other? Is the name of Jesus the greatest reality in how we live out our relationships to one another? Or do we just say that he has no rival and he has no equal when we're here in church. But then we go home and we act like we're the king of the castle. Or we go to work and we flex our muscle because we're in charge. Or is Jesus the greatest reality in everything we do? Has he transformed your heart and your mind so you just want to serve him? You just want to please him? You just want to live out his design for your life? You want to trust him? As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We will serve the Lord. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would see not just how you transform, you, not just how you promise to transform our lives and our eternities, but how you promise to transform our relationships right here and right now. If we would just acknowledge and submit to your authority. So I pray that we would humble ourselves 
and that we would lift our eyes and see Jesus for who he is, that we would recognize that you are all to us and that you would be the greatest reality in our marriages, that you would be the greatest reality in our families, that you would be our greatest reality when we go to work tomorrow. We need your transformation so we can do everything in your name and not our own. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.